Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, live this way. And then he introduces his six antitheses. The first one, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Number two, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Number three, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Number four, again, you have heard it said, that, excuse me, again, you have heard it said to your ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, do not take an oath at all. And number five, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. Lastly, number six, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The statement of, but I say to you, involves an authority that is completely alien to the spirit of the rabbis of Jesus' day. Today, people are more than happy to speak with authority. To prove that, all you have to do is read the bottom half of the internet. Go to any internet page and read the comments section. The world is filled with people who, rightly or wrongly, informed or otherwise, are more than happy to share their opinion. So if someone showed up today and said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, we would shrug our shoulders, say, okay, fine, thanks for that. It's obviously your opinion. And we would go on our way without thinking otherwise. But in Jesus' day, this was so uncommon. The rabbis would never have pit their views against the widespread accepted interpretations of Scripture. They preferred to support differing interpretations by appealing to other, earlier representatives of the rabbinic tradition. Meaning, it's a lot easier to quote someone who's dead. If you want to make a point, just quote someone who can't argue with you. Jesus' remarkable use of the phrase, but I say to you, is only explained by his identity as the messianic bringer of the kingdom. It is the Messiah's interpretation of the Torah that is ultimately authoritative. This means Jesus speaks with authority because the present voice of the living Savior always trumps at any time our human interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. Now, let me say that again. Jesus speaks, present tense, with authority because the present voice of the living Savior always trumps at any time our human interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. 
that should sound scary. Especially to those among us who desire a definitive, final interpretation or understanding of Scripture. But to deny the importance of present truth would immediately negate what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in our faith tradition, what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. It is important to note, however, that Jesus' antitheses, the but-I-say-to-you element, does not so much oppose the law, does not oppose the law itself, but it opposes a shallow and inadequate interpretation, a shallow and inadequate understanding of what the command entails. Jesus, the author of the law itself, is calling his followers to obey the timeless spirit of the law rather than the rote obedience of its letters. So with that out of the way, let us continue with our outline. Jesus' sermon continues in Matthew 6 where he preaches about the outward versus inward righteousness. And in the middle of that, in fact, in the very middle of his sermon, it includes the Lord's model prayer. Right smack dab in the middle of Jesus' graded recorded discourse or proclamation is the Lord's prayer. I do not believe this to be happenstance. Jesus then goes on and talks about our dependence upon God and continues us into what Matthew records and we deem Matthew 7, where we have various teachings in the Golden Rule. And if we get nothing from the Sermon on the Mount, except for the Golden Rule, we'll probably be better, we'll, we probably will be doing better than we already are. Then Jesus goes on with the conclusion of the sermon. I have a confession to make. I'm a bit of an antagonist. I like to push people's buttons. I like to tease. I think it bugs Pastor Alex sometimes. My sister can attest to the fact that I like to be an antagonist. She's lived most of her life bearing the brunt of my teasing. I don't like it, though, when there are arbitrary rules and regulations. And I use that antagonist spirit to be subversive. When I was in high school... And PJ can attest to this. We had some rules that weren't necessarily the most reasonable, at least in my mind. And there were some of us, and I think PJ may have been the ringleader in this group. We looked at the dress code and we thought, this is ridiculous. The rule was one of them. In fact, there were so many rules that you probably needed a law degree and a law library to contain the volume of dress code rules. 
But one of the rules in particular was that you had to wear a shirt with a turned-down collar. That's all it said. So we went to Goodwill, and we bought big butterfly-collared dress shirts. Now remember, this is the late 80s when small collars were cool. Skinny ties, 501s with pig-leg pant legs. We were pretty cool back then, I will admit. But we went to Goodwill, and we bought dress shirts with big Brady Bunch butterfly collars. And we cut them out of those dress shirts, and we hand-stitched them to our T-shirts. Our OP and town and country surf designs and local motion t-shirts. And we would show up in class and a teacher would say, you can't wear that, that's a t-shirt. And we would say, ah, that's where you're wrong. This is a shirt with a fold-down collar. It's sewn in. The letter of the law. And we used the letter of the law to completely subvert the spirit of the law. And it drove teachers nuts. But then one day, someone new showed up on campus. It was a new principal. Some might think uh, a new sheriff in town. And do you know what he did? He solved the problem. He solved the problem not by putting his foot down and saying, I'll kick you out. He solved the problem by saying, we're not going to have a dress code. Well, except for one sentence. And that giant section of the student handbook that covered dress was whittled down to one small sentence. Neat and appropriate for the activity. That's all it said. And you know what? The problem was solved. And he said to the, to the faculty and the staff, he said, if these students don't know what is neat and appropriate for the activity, that's a teaching moment. We can sit down and have a conversation with them. A reasonable conversation. And we thrived under that kind of organization and leadership. When Jesus preaches... On the side of that mountain, he says, you're good at observing the letter of the law, but you're even better at subverting its spirit. So when Jesus preached to address the letter of the law type people, he was talking about me. And I imagine he was probably talking about some of you folks too. Jesus, in his sermon, in essence, says to his audience, you've been good. Some of you even great at following the letter. But the law was never a check sheet towards righteousness. The law is intended to call you to accountability within your very heart, soul, and mind. So let's go back. And let's, let's look specifically at three of Jesus' antithetical statements. Just as examples, murder, adultery, and divorce. This is what Jesus had to say concerning murder. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This one's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Jesus says if you're having a hard time being nice to people, if you're holding anger towards someone, if you have something that needs to be reconciled with someone, it's not okay to just leave it. Fix it. And be nice, for goodness sake. Because being angry is never an okay way to live. There's no need to create enemies. Bury the hatchet. Fix it. Then Jesus goes on and he talks about adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than, the, than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go in than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus doesn't specifically address this issue by its name, but what he's getting at is the objectification of people. Specifically, the objectification of women. Now, men who Jesus is specifically speaking to They've tried to control this throughout the ages by making it a woman's issue. It's the way that women dress, the way they act, etc. Still, to this day, in some cultures, the solution to this problem is to cover women with a tent, to make them dress covered from head to toe so that men won't be tempted. And this, my friends, is ridiculous. The issue is within the heart of the one who lusts. The issue is within the heart, and it is still a problem today. So for the sake of hopefully making a point and not making people dislike me, I'd like to ask men first— a show of hands. If you've ever felt like someone has leered at you, commented on your clothes in a way that made you uncomfortable about your appearance, or while walking on the sidewalk received an unwanted cat call. Number of men. Patty McCoy, the record is, is noted. That, I mean, that's reasonable for you, Patty, I assume, yeah. Now, just for the sake of making a point, women, 
How many of you have received unwanted attention regarding your appearance, your location, your profession, or something because of your gender? A show of hands. Men, do you see the difference? Do you see the severity of this issue? Jesus addressed it 2,000 years ago, and it's still a huge problem. The objectification of human beings is a terrible sin, and it happens in overt ways, but it also happens in seemingly innocuous ways. When Jesus gives when Jesus gives the, the statement, when he, when he proclaims that if you look at a person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, he raises the bar to a level that is unattainable. If you look, he says, if you lust, you break the code. So how does this still play out today? This is not a Walla Walla University statistic. I would like to make that very clear. That this is not a statistic from our campus. But it is a nationwide statistic that 20%, one in five, 20% of women will experience some some form of dating violence during their collegiate experience. That's shameful. Women regardless of culture, tend to be sexualized, not just in the media, but also in everyday life. Even by simply referring to women as the fairer sex perpetuates the notion that they are to be observed rather than respected and engaged as equals. Jesus says this is a matter of the heart, and it is also a matter of society. So what is Jesus' counsel? Well, Jesus addresses it with a straightforward, overly pragmatic approach. Jesus uses a medical example. Even in Greco-Roman times, amputation was a standard medical procedure. It was well known that if an extremity or body part became necrotic, it would eventually kill you. At that point, it was better to remove the damaged limb rather than die from it continuing to fester and grow the infection. Jesus says, if part of you is going to keep you from living in the kingdom of heaven, it's better to cut it out. He is using hyperbole to emphasize his higher point. His higher point being, it is better to make sacrifices willingly rather than suffer the ultimate loss of losing eternal life unwillingly. Disciples are called to a standard of conduct that, inclu- that includes even the realm of their thinking. Next, Jesus approaches divorce. And he says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It is common knowledge that in biblical times, if a woman was divorced, she didn't have very many options. Hopefully there would be family who might take her in and care for her. 
but more often than not, the life that would sustain her would be a life of prostitution. Jesus is is speaking very practically here when he approaches the issue of divorce. Later on in Jesus' ministry, some Pharisees decide to ask Jesus about this. It's recorded in Matthew 19. And they ask why Moses, in the law, allowed divorce and remarriage, and he does not. And Jesus replied, People were allowed because of their hardened hearts. Which means, it must be said, that we still live in an era of hard hearts. I have a friend. I have a friend that recently made the decision not to be married any longer. And when he sat down and he had that painful conversation with his wife, he basically told her, and this is my paraphrase, not his words verbatim, but basically what he said was, I know that if we go to counseling, we can probably fix this. I just don't want to. We still live in an age of hardened hearts. Still the calling of Christ is for his people, those who bear his name, to live to the ideal. Did you know that 50%, this is according to the U.S. government, 50% of currently married women in the United States, if given the opportunity, would not marry their current husbands again. 50%. Some of you are probably wondering if you should look at your spouse right now. (laughs) But check this out. At the same time, 77% of husbands would marry the same person again. So there are some husbands who must be married to women who say, I wouldn't. Two-thirds of all divorces in the U.S. are filed by women. Two-thirds. And 50% of those women who filed for divorce regret their choice to file. That's heavy, isn't it? That's some heavy news. So how about some good news? By profession, one of the lowest groups of people to suffer divorce in this nation, by profession, guess who it is? Engineers. (laughs) Yay for Walla Walla. So why is divorce such an issue? Especially with regard to unhappy wives. Doctors John and Julie Gottman, who arguably are the top marriage psychologists today, say that successful marriages are built on two traits. Kindness and generosity. Kindness and generosity. 
successful couples show genuine kindness even during an argument. They show it in big and small ways every single day. Kindness. They also say that kindness breeds kindness. Successful couples also view their partner's intentions with generosity. And they generously share in each other's joys. Which means that a lot of the time, divorces happen when kindness and generosity don't exist in a marriage. And who's more likely to notice that lack of kindness and generosity first? The wife. And then loneliness sets in. It is important to note that Jesus, when speaking specifically about divorce, makes concession for unfaithful partners. And we are smart enough to know that there are, that there are a lot of ways to be unfaithful. Ellen White corresponded with a woman back and forth via letter. It's recorded in the book, The Adventist Home. And the letter is entitled, her final response is entitled, To a Hopelessly Mistreated Wife. Ellen White writes, I have received your letter, and in reply to it I would say, I cannot advise you to return to D unless you see excuse me, unless you see decided changes in him. The Lord is not pleased with the idea he has of what it is due a wife. If he holds to his former views, the future would not be better for you than the past has been. He does not know how to treat a wife. I feel very sad about this matter. I feel indeed sorry for D, but I cannot advise you to go to him against your judgment. I speak to you as candidly as I spoke to him. It would be perilous for you to again place yourself under his dictation. I had hoped that he would change. The Lord understands all about your experiences. Be of good cheer in the Lord. He will not leave you nor forsake you. My heart goes out in tenderest sympathy for you. This is a good letter to a hurting woman. And I would argue that reconciliation is always Jesus' ideal. Yet, even he makes concessions for unfaithfulness to one's marital vow. So looking at these three examples, these three antithetical statements with regard to the way that people had understood the law, some questions must be asked. 
Does the radical demands of Jesus' sermon point only to a level of personal ethics? Or does he intend a social dimension as well? Does the sermon represent a realistic utopianism? Is the idealism of the sermon mainly intended to demonstrate the need of grace and hence to drive us to the gospel? I will let the theologian Donald Hagner answer these questions. He writes, We assume the perspective of the sermon describes the ethics of the kingdom, thus explaining its idealism. An adequate understanding of the sermon is thus hardly possible apart from the context of the gospel and the proclamation of the good news of the now dawning kingdom of God. The grace of God is fundamental to all, as the Beatitudes that preface the sermon clearly show. The righteousness described here is to be the goal of the Christian in this life, although it will only be attained fully in the eschaton proper. It is primarily an ethics concerning the individual, but it it is not without implications for social ethics. The radical nature of the sermon must not be lost in a privatization of its ethics. So the questions are asked, is Jesus' sermon a picture of some utopian ideal or real expectation upon the individual and societal lives of everyday Christians? Is it sometimes to be lived, is it, excuse me, is it something to be lived today even though it won't be lived perfectly until after Jesus comes again? In a word, Hagner's answer is yes. He says all of the above. Christ has called us to a higher standard of living as kingdom people. It is a standard unattainable, though, without grace. He expects kingdom people to live according to the high standard of the law and not just the letter of the law. And by such living, we too fulfill the spirit of the law. Be cautious, though. When we think we've attained perfection— Jesus calls us further into the Eden ethic. The warning is this. Don't be caught up in the misconception that given enough willpower and piety, one could meet the measure of the law and gain favor with God. A mistake the rich young ruler tried. On that mountainside, Jesus says, if you think you can make it, You are sorely mistaken. You've heard it said, but now I say unto you, it's even harder than you thought. So it is here, in this despair, that we find the good news of the gospel. And I will let Ellen White have the last word as she sums it up best in her book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Whom Christ pardons he first makes penitent. And it is the office of the Holy Spirit to convince of sin. Those whose hearts have been moved by the convincing Spirit of God see that there is nothing good in themselves. They see that all they have done is mingled with self and sin. Like the poor publican, they stand afar off, not daring to lift up so much as their eyes to heaven and cry, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And they are blessed. There is forgiveness for the penitent. 
For Christ is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. God's promise is, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A new heart also I will give you, and I will put my spirit within you. Amen.